Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. The race is on, and the Mercedes dominance was shattered by that man, Max Verstappen, who claimed a stunning victory for Red Bull. Meanwhile, just as at Silverstone last year, Valtteri Bottas was left scratching his head over strategy after turning pole position into P3 behind teammate Lewis Hamilton. I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to look back on F1's terribly named 70th anniversary Grand Prix are Mark Hughes and Scott Mitchell. Uh, Mark, are you in the, uh, the anniversary spirit? Do you think that was a fitting landmark for F1? I think it was quite funny that it was the 70th birthday of Formula One, effectively, or oh, the Formula One World Championship. And... Um it ended up as a fight, didn't it? On a, you know all the the racing point stuff, a sort of fight broke out at a seventieth birthday party. That's quite funny in in itself, I think. But um, yeah, I mean it uh, it was a it was an entertaining race. It was a good weekend at racing, I think. And um, yeah, there was lots to talk about the 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 one step softer tires, certainly um, in combination with the increased pressures and the uh, very hot track temperature um, certainly uh, produced a few curveballs and that was behind I think um, the the upset we saw in the race result. Yeah that's what we like to see a bit of an upset and some curveballs. Scott Mitchell as always calling in from Stockholm. How how was it from there? Did you get your telescope out and uh, and manage to see Silverstone this time round or not? We're not going to go into that again. I felt I was uh, I was I was abused enough the last time we went down that path. No I thought it was good uh, today. I watched it through a normal uh, for, for a normal screen like everybody else, didn't try anything anything fancy. I think F1's looking pretty good for 70, isn't it? Doesn't look a day over 60. Pretty good race. <laughs> well, that's certainly the case. It's probably the most uh, interesting race of the season. So so let's get, get into it. I mean, Mark, you, you mentioned a few of the factors, but this race was all about tyres. Max Verstappen started fourth, picks off Nico Hülkenberg, of whom more later at the start, then ran along in the first stint on hard tyres. And what followed was actually a genuine surprise as the Red Bull team didn't just out-strategy Mercedes, but actually had stronger race pace given the limitation of the tyres. So how and why has Verstappen suddenly been able to beat both Mercedes drivers in a straight fight? Um, it was a little bit the Red Bull was working much better today than at any other point and uh, during this weekend or any previous weekend this year. But more than that, it was the fact that the Mercs were in desperate trouble with um, blistering of the rear tyres and they, it was there from very, very early, lap three or something, they knew they were in problems. And uh, you, you'll have heard the radio where um, Max's pit wall was saying, uh, your tyre temperatures are getting a bit high. You need to start backing off now. And he responded with absolutely no way. This is uh, this is my chance to race them. And what what the pit wall couldn't know was what he was seeing was that when 
he was pushing Lewis and Lewis was, you know, going through some of the faster corners flat out. Max could see that the that line was forming on the the left rear of Lewis's car, so he knew it had blisters, and he knew this wasn't the time to be backing away from them. This was the time to be pushing up to them, especially as he was on that harder tyre. So um, it didn't really matter too much if he was taking that tyre in a little bit past its optimum temperature because his only competition was the Mercedes, and they were in much worse um, position. So that was basically the... The foundation of his victory it was a it was a performance victory um and it was because of the mercs was such terrible tire troubles but um, max and red bull took full advantage of that um ruthlessly i thought it was amazing that um verstappen in that situation i i liked the i liked the way he sort of used his newfound sort of cockiness and humor over the radio to dismiss gp when he said uh, i'm not just going to sit here like a grandma I'm actually going to go for it. What I find stunning with Verstappen is that he has that he has that feel and understanding of the situation so early on in a stint to be able to say, no, I think I can push. Because at that point, you're just reading what the tyres are telling you. But he's also applying a bit of, um, a, a little bit of clairvoyance to it. And he actually thinks, you know, if I, I know what it's doing now, I reckon I can carry on pushing this much without hurting them. And it's just, it's just. I just thought it was a masterclass in management from from Max. I thought it was absolutely excellent. Yeah, we see this from uh, from great drivers, don't we? We ask this question on the website: Does this mean that uh, that, that Verstappen is 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 the best driver in Formula One? Which had a, a divisive set of opinions from all of us on the race dot com. You can find that there. But I love it when drivers do that. They sort of take control of the situation. We've seen Fernando Alonso do that in the in the past. Fugio 8's one that always springs to mind for me when he was running second behind Kubica in the uh, first stint, but he was basically calling the shots. Yeah, I think it's brilliant because you've got a situation there where Mercedes found themselves in a, a rare set of circumstances that were really hurting them. So it wasn't just the fact that Mercedes was having a little bit of a bad day. I think they they sort of saw themselves as being on the absolute worst end of the spectrum for problems with the tires. But worse than that was the fact that Red Bull seemed to be at the complete other end of the spectrum, actually being able to manage it really well to the point where I think they were having to do more management Mercedes in the high-speed corners while going slower than the Red Bulls. So that that was really difficult, but it takes it takes an excellent excellent performance to be able to be there and punish them the way Verstappen did. So it wasn't it's not obviously not just a case of all oh, Mercedes tripped up Verstappen and Red Bull like the 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 circumstances just made them absolutely come alive. Yeah, well, we've seen this uh, ghost of this uh, Mercedes problem in the heat um, already this year. We saw it in uh, Friday practice in Austria too. Uh, we saw last week in Friday practice at Silverstone. They do seem to struggle with the tyres when the track temperatures get really hot. Um, and this, of course, um, was made even worse with the uh, the the high pressures and the, the particularly high track temperatures today. Um, so this is the first time we've seen that situation carried through to a race day. And I think even Merck was surprised by just how bad it was. It didn't catch them completely by surprise. They they were um, anxious about it going into the race because, as I say, they'd seen this ghost of this problem before. But I don't think even they were expecting it to happen, fall apart the way it did so early. Yeah, very much so. And after the race, Lewis Hamilton said that 
you know, normally he's at the good end of the tyre management spectrum, but he, he was struggling with the way things were working. So I think it came as a real, real surprise to them. Well, you know, it's bad because they're already talking about sort of getting, they're, they're already talking about concerned about looking silly on Sunday in Barcelona because in Spain this, this coming week, the temperatures are going to be very high again. We know that, it, we know that Barcelona is a very high energy circuit. So Mercedes, you know, Toto Wolf, Andrew Shovlin, they're all, they're, they've both come out and said that they've only got a small window now to dig into this because it's not enough. You know, Mercedes hasn't won the titles that it's won by simply shrugging and going, oh, well, you know, we, we suck a bit in, in hot conditions. We just have to take our lumps. That's not how they work. It's all about diving in and trying to find a solution, but they've not got long to do that. So there is a bit of urgency about Mercedes trying to get on top of this because, as Mark said, there were already a little bit of um, evidence to suggest that they're weak in hot conditions, but nothing to suggest it was this extreme or that Red Bull would come alive as a result of it. So it's a double whammy for Mercedes and they need to get to the bottom of it. Yeah, that's the thing. Problem known about, but the extent of it was just much more exaggerated than, than suspected. Now, Scott, Valtteri Bottas wasn't really very happy with his strategy. Just as in the British Grand Prix at Silverstone in 2019, he started on pole but found himself beaten by Hamilton, who had a different strategic approach. Hamilton one stopped, Bottas two stopped. He wasn't very happy. Bottas didn't seem particularly happy today either. Do you think he has a point, given he was left out uh, well, given Hamilton stayed out much longer in that uh, in that penultimate stint, and then was able to to come by him at the end. Yeah, I can see how, especially in the moment, it must have felt like a proper stitch up. Not necessarily because Mercedes were genuinely trying to to screw Bottas over, but just a, a, a big a, a big error, and then they then just tried to to, to help Lewis. So I think it, it probably felt a lot worse than than it was. And, you know, Wolf was asked about this after the race and said uh, he'd spoken to Valtteri because Valtteri, I think, had accused Mercedes of sleeping, basically, bringing him in at the same time as Verstappen and basically locking him into a strategy in which he was never going to win. But then Lewis was given the opportunity to extend the stint as far as possible and maybe even consider the, the, the one stop. And that is ultimately what swung the race towards Lewis in the Battle of the Mercedes. So Bottas felt very, very hard done by but I think it's a little bit of, it seemed to me like Mercedes felt um, that they didn't really have any other choice. Hamilton was probably going to follow Bottas into the pits pretty soon. But then when they checked Bottas's tyres, they realised that beyond the blistering, there was quite a bit of rubber left. So actually, there was the opportunity to, to go longer with, with, with Lewis. But um, in, in all matters strategy, I tend to defer to Mark because he's, uh, he's far more across these issues than I am. <laughs> in in this particular case, it was, again, like last year, um, it, as you say, Scott, it wasn't the team trying to stitch one driver up for the advantage of the other one. But it was based upon Lewis doing a better job with combining the pace with the, the tyres. And the reason they brought Bottas in when they did was he had a pretty severe vibration. And given that was the prelude last week to the deflations, obviously they were a little bit nervous, um, they had Leclerc just, um, you know, he he wasn't quite within their window yet. So if he needed, if, but if Bottas had needed to back off a lot more, he, he might have started edging into his window. Um, they weren't going to beat Max. There was no way they were going to beat Max. He did a, he was doing purples as he came in that were nowhere near what um, Valtteri could do at that stage with the tyres, the, the, the state they were in. Um, but Lewis at that time 
wasn't complaining of a vibration. He had no vibrations at all at that point. So they just let him stay out there, especially, as you say, Scott, because they checked the uh, tread depth on the tires that came off Valtteri's car. So they were a bit more uh, reassured by that, the safety of that. And so they just left him out there as long as they could until Lewis eventually started getting vibrations as well. But that was 10 laps later. So that was the reason he had that more strategic flexibility because he hadn't quite taken as much out of the tyres and that's exactly how he was able to do it last year as well from behind. There was a point, wasn't there, where Max looked like he was almost able to toy with the Mercedes. It was basically, you just, you know, keep your tyres in reserve just in case we need this pace. And it it felt like Max had basically every option open to him once he'd extended that, that opening stint. I just, I thought it was... I thought it was really, really telling that when uh, when when the Mercs came in and Max still had that pace on his old hards compared to what they were having to do in conservation mode, that, for me, as soon as that happened, it was like, okay, this is Max's race to lose. In hindsight, when you trace it all back, you know, when you work backwards from the end result and see how it was achieved, it was, it all, it, all the signs were there by lap seven, lap eight. And... Um, it was just a, a much a much quicker car on those tires on that day, and um, you know you don't you don't get away with giving Max Verstappen an, adv- an advantage and uh, expect expect to come out on top because you won't. Yeah, a driver like that will always ruthlessly press home his advantage, and he did that brilliantly. But Mark. Verstappen's now only thirty points behind Lewis Hamilton in the drivers' championship. I say only thirty; it's still quite a lot. Uh, Bottas is, I think, four points further behind. Do we now have to start thinking Verstappen could be a championship threat or is that rather overstating it given the unusual situations with the tyres this weekend? Um, yeah, I mean, we were were here not very long ago saying, can we see Mercedes doing a clean sweep? And um, we were saying last week that they probably got away with the Monza 88 moment and um, it's, it's you know, that that's, it shows that it's, it's, it's not real any point in in trying to predict these things because it's um when you're involving something as complex as formula one and as unpredictable as as tires and and, and weather combinations there's no telling but you know if we get a similarly hot barcelona although the tire uh, choice is not as aggressive there um we get a similarly hot Mugello, which is going to be very very um tough on the tires who knows? You, 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 you don't know, but the underlying raw performance of the car in normal conditions, Red Bull's still quite a way behind, as, as they you know, admitted post-race today. It was just in these conditions on this day, they were much the better car. Yeah, Christian Horner suggested that some of the, the car's more uncooperative characteristics have been got on top of, but they're still, uh, particularly in qualifying, a deficit to, to turn over. So, yeah, great for Red Bull. Mega win, good for the season, but uh, yeah, it'd be premature to be uh, waving Red Bull flags and thinking they're suddenly going to be winning the the championship from uh, from Spain onwards. But it certainly made it interesting. Now, Scott, let's talk about a team that's nothing to do with the championship fight, and that's Ferrari. Everybody appeared to have caught up with its lower downforce approach last week. We didn't expect Charles Leclerc to repeat last weekend's race result after he qualified eighth. But somehow he he kind of effectively did by finishing fourth because, of course, last week he'd have been fourth without Bottas's late puncher. He managed to pull off a one-stopper that nobody really thought was was possible. So how? 
Well, the team doesn't know, and, and Leclerc doesn't know, so I've got I've got no chance of of telling you why. Um, Leclerc was really really surprised, even in the um, even by the time the um, the the adrenaline had long worn off, and he was um, he was sitting down for Ferrari's Sunday evening media uh, m- media activity. He was saying, "Just don't know the reason. Need to di- dive into the data because." I think it was after was it after Friday or maybe it was after qualifying. He'd said, you know, we really we really expect to struggle because the, the the pace hadn't been great in Friday practice and they they weren't they weren't you know at the top of the midfield group in qualifying either. And then oh, I don't know. It, it's it just seemed that all of a sudden the pace that they couldn't unlock in terms of the longevity of the tires, but also managing them while running quickly was suddenly there. So I suspect they'll be diving massively into the data to work out if this was an anomaly because of the raised tyre pressures, if it was some kind of combination of uh, track conditions and track temperature and ambient temperature that just meant that they got them into a nice window. But there was a point where uh, Leclerc genuinely thought he could snipe for third. He, he, I think he said it was when, um, it was when the guys came out of the pits because uh, when Verstappen and Bottas stopped and Leclerc was like, well, hang on a second, I'm not, uh, he, he's not dropping me. <laughs> so he said he, he started to push and then he started to feel a vibration of his own. So he sort of reined it in a little bit, but I think he was still, what was it, 10 seconds clear of, of the next car. So I think, I think I said on the podcast last week, this was Leclerc's, the British Grand Prix was Leclerc's best drive since Monza last year. But I think this is his best drive of the season and best result of the season because corrected for you know anomalies and weird weirdness during the races. I think this is his best result and earned through from a really really diligent and an excellent performance. So I I think he just he keeps finding new ways to to one up himself. Yeah, his tires were in great shape as well. You could see that even though he'd only been on them for thirty odd laps, even as the the Merck's tyres, which had only gone on sort of 10 laps earlier, um, in, in the case of Lewis, a bit more in case of Valtteri, um, they were they were in pieces. And the, the Ferrari's just looking after the tyres beautifully. And I, I think there's got to be some sort of correlation with this um, relative lack of downforce of the car. Um, it's relative lack of power. And the... The factor is looking after its tires. I think it was probably a this these two Silverstones have probably been a really um, happy confluence of circumstance. I, I don't think there's anything really. I don't think they came here thinking we'll we'll be on top of the tires here if we do this. I think they came here thinking we haven't got very much power, so we need to run low downforce, and the the, the, the circuit now rewards that quite well. Um, but it, everything came together in Ferrari's favour of these two Silverstone weekends, and Leclerc's just like just like Verstappen. You give him you give him something, and he'll just grab all of it and make absolute maximum use of it. He's just that class of driver. <clears throat> so he's yeah, he's done those two beautiful Silverstone drives. He did a beautiful drive in Austria to take the official second. Um, you know, massively flattering the car at the moment. Although the car is better in race trip than it qualifies, there's, a, there's an element of that. But it is, it's there is a, a very big element of him flattering the car. 
It was, a, as you said, Mark, a happy confluence of circumstances, but only for one of the Ferraris. <laughs> Obviously, uh, Seb, uh, Seb would massively disagree with the assessment. But I think, I think, I think you conspiracy theorists will, have, um, will be watching back the first lap, the replay of Seb on lap one, and they'll be pinpointing the moment where Ferrari pressed the self-destruct button on Vettel's car yeah. into turn one. Because that was... Of, and we've got quite a big catalogue of Vettel errors now over the last two and a half seasons. I think that's the most unusual spin he's done. It was a, it was a really weird tank slapper. And it was only, he, he only avoided total catastrophe because Carlos Sainz Jr. has ridiculous reactions. It looked, it, it looked as though he had quite a lot of steering lock on and put the car a long way over that inside curb maybe distracted by, you know, wanting to avoid what potential looked like potential trouble because Leclerc locked up. Um, and it just overestimated how much grip there, there was on, on that curb and had the power on. And the, you could hear from the, the in-car, you could hear the wheels suddenly spool up very, very suddenly. And he basically just, yeah, power slid himself into a tank slab. Yeah, another... Very, very tough weekend for Vettel. Although I would argue it, in terms of pace, it was a lot better than last weekend because at least he was, what, 0.369 off in, in qualifying. So compared to nine a second last time, that was uh, that was a step forward. But yeah, really, really tough weekend for, for Vettel. A lot of people have been writing him off, but to be fair, he has had, he, he's not been like this all season. I know we're only five races in, so interesting to see what happens when we get to, to Spain, a circuit that he should be a little bit happier at, but it's... Uh, yeah, it's been a very, very difficult season and a bit fractious as well in the car, wasn't he? Yeah, I, I, I asked Seb um, if this is an unusual period of his career in terms of not being able to identify the problem and actually be able to improve because he said this, he said this evening that he basically hasn't improved in the car since Saturday last week. So, and by that I mean Saturday at the British Grand Prix. So he's had what was what was that five days of of running on track and hasn't been able to make gains, but he's he's pretty adamant that Austria you can't count and Hungary was pretty good. So he's trying to view it from the point of view that it's only really at Silverstone. I I think that's a bit of a generous interpretation on on his part because he has by and large been been off off of off of Leclerc and especially when the car seems capable of, of its good days. Um, it's now got to the point where. You know, you can see he's properly at odds with with his team. There was the moment in the British Grand Prix after the flag where obviously he ignored Bonotto coming over the radio. Um, and then during the race today, he made a point, having spun on lap one and ruined his race, halfway through the Grand Prix, he's pointedly telling the team, you've messed up because they've damaged a strategy that's making the difference between him probably finishing 11th and finishing 12th or 13th instead. Like... He's pointing fingers. The team's are, team's not happy with him. It just feels like the relationship's just getting ever more fractured. Yeah, it's uh, it's not a good uh, look, is it? And ultimately, well, we had this discussion during the race. It's kind of well, yeah, strategy. That's not your first order problem. Your problem is you pointed the wrong direction at turn one uh, on the first lap. But yeah, uh, I mean, Vettel Hungaroring. He was quick. Um, did a did a decent enough job in in the Styrian Grand Prix before uh, weekend before he was taken out. So it's not utterly irredeemable, but yeah, in terms of the wider picture, it's it's not 
turning into a, a happy swan song. And I thought it would go a lot better, actually. Uh, let's have a look, Mark, at Alex Alban. He had another action-packed weekend. He struggled, as usual, against Verstappen in qualifying. He was about half a second off in Q3, although he was a little bit closer, actually, when they were both on mediums on that first run. He ended up on this odd strategy because he had the really early pit stop at the end of lap six, quite an attacking move. And then, sure enough, come the end of the race, there he is in in fifth place as Sundays again proved to be uh, his strong suit. Yeah, he's still he's still struggling a little bit in in qualifying, um, and he was a bit thrown by the balance change of the cars when he the, the car when he went from the medium to the soft tire in Q three. In fact, he was slower on a set of new softs than he'd been on a set of used medium so clearly something not working there the more the more it happens the more it's becoming an issue and it sort of seems to be feeding on itself and he's not getting these clear runs through the weekend but then he does put these great recovery drives in and he does he doesn't shy away from the big moves i mean that <laughs> that move on he did on Kimi was one of the bravest I've ever seen. I think he found himself out there a little bit by accident, having um, figured that Kimi would give him a bit more room than that. But he stayed, he stuck with it and then pulled it off. And he does, he, yeah, okay, it's a much faster car against a slower car, but you still, you still have to pull the moves off. And he is very, very good at that. And uh, he was flying in the late stages of the race and um, setting fastest laps. So yeah, there is something in there, but he's not accessing it on demand, and it's it's gonna if the car becomes more competitive, hopefully that can just get him across that threshold, and he, the confidence will start to come. But there were times this weekend where he looked um, very sort of down, and Zoe was uh, struggling to come up with answers. I do wonder if in qualifying trim. He does seem to struggle a little bit getting the tyres in the window. And we've seen this in various conditions. Like he struggled on the warm-up lap last weekend to get the tyres up to temperature. And maybe with the, the softs, he went a little bit too aggressive because he struggled to, uh, more on the softs and on the mediums in, in Q3. So I wonder if it's one of those things that, you know, if you really get on top of the tyres, then you can flick a switch and there can be a bit of a step change. I don't think that suddenly means he'll be matching Verstappen blow for blow. But it just feels just that almost that inconsistency in the in the qualifying scenario makes me wonder if it's just not quite getting it right there's always some one end or the other just seems to go or because uh, it's a really fine art doing that but you know that's that's just one of the many things uh he's also of course up against a, a, a insanely quick driver in uh in uh in max verstappen but fifth place uh a, a good salvage job now scott we haven't talked about racing point properly yet uh we'll talk about the off-track business later on Uh, Obviously, on the eve of the Grand Prix weekend, Sergio Perez again tested positive for COVID-19. Perhaps not a surprise, but they were hanging on for him. Nico Hülkenberg was back. So how impressed were you with that third place he got in qualifying? Yeah, I thought it was excellent. Not so much because uh, it's not where the car should be, because we know that the racing point is really quick. But I thought it was just a fantastic job that it was Hulk that was the guy who put it on third and not not the team's regular driver. You know, he comfortably outclassed Lance Stroll on in qualifying, and I'd wager as well he actually did a better job than than Lance in the in the Grand Prix by virtue of his better track position. And it was only, I think, because of um, uh, I think it's, I think he had a problem, didn't he, late on with a vibration, so so pitted towards the end. But the 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 qualifying was the most impressive because it's that it's the finer the fine details, the nuances that 
unlock those last sort of one or two temps of pace. And I, I, I think in general the expectation was if you know if he could get within a couple of temps of Stroll, you know, who isn't a terrible driver, then Hulk was probably doing a really good job because you know, he's been out of the car since Abu Dhabi last year. He hasn't been living and training like a Formula One driver. And this is a team that he's relearning as well. He's been with Renault for, for what was it, the last three years in, in Formula One. So he doesn't have all the tools at his disposal. And, and Lewis Hamilton said he last weekend in, at the British Grand Prix, he can't even begin to say how far Nico is behind all the other drivers because he's not in tune with all of the tools that he's got at his disposal. So it was never really expected that Nico was going to be absolutely mega in qualifying. And yet there we were, Saturday afternoon, he's pumped in... He's just about got through to Q3 because he thought he'd uh, he thought he'd made a massive error, damaged the car in in I think his first Q2 run, um, and then he pulls out the bag. Absolutely stunning lap, and yeah, absolutely one of the the, the stars of the weekend. And that got him a unique, uh, an almost unique experience because I think that's oh, obviously this is not what the word unique means, but I think that's only the second time in his career after qualifying that he's been in one of the official top three post qualifying or post race press conferences. The other being his pole at Interlagos in uh, in twenty ten. So it's been a it's been a while, but yeah, uh, it was interesting in the race because yeah, Hulkenberg. I was a bit worried for him at the start, but he only lost one place to Verstappen, and then he was always going to fall behind Verstappen. So. That, that counted as a win. And then he was running ahead of, of Stroll because Stroll got ahead of Ricardo, So they were fourth and fifth. And then obviously Leclerc and Albon got through them. Obviously there was some suspicion and raised eyebrows about that extra stop and whether it was a convenient way to, to swap the positions. So the, the son of the team owner finished ahead. I must admit, I was quite suspicious initially. But having had a listen through that stint, there was an amount of uh, Nico sort of saying, he, he reported that the vibration on this are quite high. He said it's much worse than the previous set. And then he reported a big blister on the rear left. And then, of course, he was called in to uh, to stop uh, by the team and put on to softs. And they did offer him the chance to go for fastest lap. But obviously, I don't think the tyres quite had it in them to uh, to do that. So while I must admit I had some sympathy with the idea, it was very convenient. It, everything they said and they did was consistent with what Hulkenberg said. He said on the slowdown lap, yeah, it's a shame about that set of tyres. He did ask about Lance's... Con- condition in the uh at the start of his final stints and was told yeah it wasn't as bad there so i don't know maybe he just thought well that that's okay that's the way it goes but it didn't affect the team's result in the end um and you know stroll did a decent job in the race ultimately uh you have to give him some some credit for that sixth and seventh racing point was a, was a good uh good finish is anyone gonna gonna sign up for the conspiracy theory on that what do you think mark because you think it was a it was a fair move no no it's, i mean they occasionally there's something in them, but this one now I don't see it. I think um, they always would want to be maximising, you know, they want to be close as close to the front as possible. So now I, I really can't see it. Yeah, and it's absolutely was consistent with uh, with the messages coming from uh, coming from Hulkenberg over the radio. And ultimately, if he has had his last drive for Racing Point this year, and they have said that they're not Altmar staff now, the team principal said ninety nine percent sure that Perez will test negative got it right this time Aaron last week I struggled with that uh will be cleared for Spain I'd still say 99% sounds a little bit of a high uh certainty but if not Hulkenberg will be back in and uh, let's see let's see what he can do but he certainly reminded everyone he's a, a strong contender for a drive next year and seems like Alfa Romeo and Haas for example and maybe a few others uh, will have taken uh notes now Mark before we get on to the minor points finishers we should talk about 
Daniel Ricciardo struggles. He ran six in the first stint. He qualified fifth, slipped behind Stroll the first lap. He had a spin just after his second stop that ultimately led to him finishing 14th after he had to sort of abort that stint and, and have a another pit stop. He described that moment as a Seb spin, which I thought was a, was a great description. Uh, <laughs> I quite enjoyed that. It was, it was an answer to my question. So uh, wh- why did he say that? Um, well, I guess he's on the inside and trying to put the power down, which is um, the spin that Seb had when he was racing Daniel in Austin a couple of years ago. Um, and Seb had a similar spin. It uh, was a Bahrain when racing Lewis. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's when you're when you're on the inside, wheel to wheel, but you're the guy on the inside, and you you've, you're having to put a bit more steering lock on than ideal in order just to avoid hitting the other guy. But you're trying to get out better traction out of there than him, and you just stand on the gas a bit too hard. And I think he was referring to the he feels there might be some sort of aero effect. Um, that you suddenly that the car suddenly is robbed of downforce by the other car alongside it as you, as on the, as you're in the transition of the turn, and he feels that that happened at just the time that he had a lot of steering lock on and he was hard on the gas and it just he begin he's beginning to understand why um, Seb's had those spins now. Yeah, he said he he sort of bounded up to Seb in the media pan where they do the TV interview straight after the race to talk to him about it, because he said it's the first time he experienced it. So uh, he, he probably went up to Seb and said, oh, I, see, I see what you mean. I just thought you were being rubbish, but actually I, I get it now. I think that, I think that was the implication of, uh, of what he said. But yeah, you know, the Renaults, the Renaults ultimately were, were quicker. They struggled. To, they, they were a little bit on the back foot going into the race because they'd rather carelessly burned up one of their two sets of hard tyres on the Friday, they were the only team to do that. <laughs> I asked Ricardo about that after qualifying. He said, yeah, I only found out about that after. And then I asked a few questions because it, it was odd. I think 15 drivers in the race used two sets of hards in the race. So it was the, it was the main race tie. But obviously we saw Renault probably having the, well, definitely having the the better of the battle with McLaren. That's kind of the, the, they're the natural enemies, both being uh Renault engine, upwardly mobile teams. Um, Ocon came through to finish eighth on a one-stop strategy, but what do we what do we make of uh, the ebbs and flows between those two? Renault seem to be making some progress. Certainly, uh, the past two weekends have been encouraging. Yeah, I mean Silverstone should have suited Renault more than it suits McLaren. I mean McLaren tends to go better on um, type of tracks that require a bit of low-speed downforce, um, but they carry that comes with a bit of drag and so circuits that are rewarding of low drag like Silverstone you'd expect the Renault to do better and it was a bit disappointing really on its um in qualifying last week um but it they seemed to have made some sense of it by race day and they were flying towards the end of the, of, the, of last week's race um both of them and then that seemed to carry through in the qualifying for this one with, with Daniel in particular but then yeah you just they didn't um didn't hang the tire strategy together very well um, they, they probably probably made the wrong choice with Daniel on strategy, um, and Esteban just salvaged what he could with a with a one stop. But yeah, very very strange why they used up that hard so early in the weekend when they only had two of them. Feels like a little bit like that's what they normally do. Therefore, they did it, and then they thought, oh, hang on a minute, because it's not like they wanted to use the soft. They didn't even use the softs in Q three. So <laughs> yeah, there was no benefit in uh, in saving them. But yeah, the interesting little battle. And and Scott Carlos Sainz had a little bit of a handicap this weekend, didn't he? That was uh, that was holding him back. So he was uh, he certainly ended up thirteenth in the race. 
Uh, so Norris again led the line for them. Yeah, so on uh, Friday, I think it was, McLaren noticed that there was a bit of a bit of an anomaly on Sainz's car. I think it was on um, one one part of the call on the cooling system. Uh, so it meant that from Friday onwards, they noticed that his car was running slightly hotter than Lando's, and basically before qualifying, they they couldn't quite identify the the pro- the cause of it, let alone obviously fix it. So their solution was effectively to open up the the bodywork at the back of the car to prevent signs facing extreme temperature management in the race. So he wasn't held back in the Grand Prix because he was having to manage the problem. It was because of the 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 workaround they'd basically come up with to avoid that, which meant that by opening up the bodywork, he had a bit more drag, which McLaren said accounted pretty much for the entire deficit to Norris in in qualifying. I think it was it was less than two temps, I think, like 0.18 or something like that. So it's not a huge amount, but obviously Silverstone's such a high-speed circuit, and it's not just like the hangar straight that's sensitive. You're pretty much flat now, aren't you, from what, like, as soon as you get on the power out of Luffield until you're breaking for the set of, for, for, for Beckett's, halfway through Beckett's. So every, every time you're full throttle and, and at high speed, he was losing out a little bit. Not a huge amount, but it is something that he carried through qualifying and into the race. I still think he did a really good job, but unfortunately, McLaren have, clearly have a, an Achilles heel don't they, in the, in the pit stops and signs appears to have, his luck appears to have completely deserted him so far this season. Yeah. His first stop was, uh, was very long. It was to do with the front left gun. There's uh, there's an automated system that obviously clears when the, the wheels are all on and allows the green light to go. And, uh, the green light didn't go even though the wheel was on. So that, that cost him quite a significant. Amount. I think it's about seven odd seconds that that first pit stop was long. So that, kind of knocked Sainz out of any contention for uh, for points. So, uh, yeah, that, that battle for the minor places was uh, ended up being kind of a fairly McLaren-y, Renault-y kind of affair with, uh, with Ocon 8th, Norris 9th. And then in 10th place, we did have an interloper in, in Daniel Kvyat, the, uh, the Alfa Tauri driver who's ahead of Pierre Gasly. It's quite an interesting weekend for Kvyat because he was, he was looking more promising in qualifying. And then he had the little mistake with a gust of wind in Beckett's ran over the kerb, had a big moment at Stowe, ran wide and then had the lap time deleted, so fell in Q1 while Gasly was stunningly good in qualifying up in seventh place, continuing his pretty strong season. But then in the race, ended up with Kvyat 10th and, and Gasly 11th. It was slightly odd, Mark, though. Gasly ended up following Albon uh, into the pits early on. That was perhaps a little bit of a misstep by AlphaTauri. It was a kind of very aggressive move from Red Bull, but it, it, it sort of set Gasly on a slightly tricky path, didn't it? Yes, um, Gasly in the Alpha Tauri wasn't ever going to be racing Albon over the the distance. He was always going to be, you know, well behind. So why why they place such importance on maintaining track position over him at that particular early stage of the race? I, I'm not quite sure, but that did compromise his race. It meant that he had um, he had to do too too long on the subsequent stint, and that's really what cost him um, the position to to his teammate. Yeah, and Kvyat did a did a decent job in the race coming through from uh, from sixteenth. So uh, solid for Alpha Tower, you'd say. Yeah, and at least they, at least they had something to show for it because, as you say, Gasly's race unravelled. I was just going to say that for if you were going to pick a driver to be interloping in tenth, it would be Kvyat, wouldn't it? He is just he he is just always going to show up somewhere between ninth and twelfth. That just feels like a very Kvyat position. I've actually. And because I just, I, I sort of had this thought as a slightly flippant one. And then I just sort of dug up some stats just to see if I was m- completely making it up. 
but he has spent more laps. Uh, the most laps of his career have been spent in ninth, tenth, eleventh, or twelfth position. It's actually twelfth place is his most run position. He spent a five hundred and fifty-two laps of Grand Prix in in twelfth place. Well, you could say that's about par for him then, because of course Vettel spun and then struggled, so finished behind him, and Ricardo had the problem. So uh, that that. That explains that one, a, a par for Kvyat, but, but a decent uh, decent performance. Yeah, so we had Kvyat 10th, Gasly 11th, Vettel 12th, Sainz down in 13th ahead of uh, Ricardo. Then we kind of to the, for want of a better word, rather harshly, the dregs, I'm going to call them. Uh, Kimi Raikkonen in 15th place, he wasn't very happy after qualifying because the car's just not very good. Um, and he sort of said, well, 20th, 18th, 16th, what's the difference? Uh, he put it slightly more colourfully than that. Uh, actually, Roman Grosjean in, in 16th place, his race uh, obviously wasn't the most straightforward, but he was really good in qualifying. That was a really good qualifying uh, qualifying lap from him. He, he rated that. He said it was like the, the Lotus days uh, of old when he's running up front in races. And I think he put that in one of his three best Haas qualifying performances. So he was going well, but just as Kevin Magnussen, who was... Uh, who had a penalty for rejoining dangerously while battling with Latifi. He was uh, really struggling uh, th- this time round. But the Haas, the Haas drivers struggle to both do well at the same time. I think there's a bit of a driving style incompatibility there. Uh, and we had, yeah, obviously Giovinazzi 17th, Russell 18th, Latifi 19th. Latifi seemed a little bit unhappy that he wasn't ordered past Russell because he reckoned he was quicker. Uh, the Williams is obviously struggling a bit in the race uh, this, this weekend, but Russell again... Stuck it in Q two, continued that run, which was uh, which was encouraging for for him. Uh, has anyone got any strong feelings about uh, about that that bottom six? Obviously, it's a very uh, very sort of clear battle with those those three teams at the moment. Just the, the two Ferrari customers plus plus Williams. Yeah, there doesn't the seem to be a pattern really. It, it, it just seems to vary according to you know track sensitivities, track characteristics, and how they affect each car. Um, yeah, looks what. What's quite tantalising for Williams is that if they can sort of convert and, and and get on a decent development curve and start regularly finishing ahead of those two teams, the next the back of the next group's not very far away, and you might you might you know be picking up the odd point here or there on on merit rather than you know retirements, um which. After the couple of seasons I've just had, would be um, a massive result for Williams. It's for Williams. The encouraging thing is that while there is clearly this step with the Mercedes engine this year, which I think is flattering them slightly in in qualifying, it's certainly helping them more than say Haas and Alfa Romeo, who are their immediate rivals. But they basically they just don't have any. They've got such blunted weapons over one lap, and then I, I think because the Mercedes engine advantage isn't quite there to the same degree in the race, that plays a part in Williams slipping back. So it would be, I think it, but I think it would be too easy a conclusion to say that the Mercedes engine is the only reason Williams seems to have made progress. Because if you put this year's Mercedes engine in last year's Williams, last year's Williams was not becoming a Q2 marginal car, was it? That was just a, it it was better. it, It just wasn't. So there is clear progress there, but yeah, as Mark says, there there just needs to be that sort of concentrated effort to to work out exactly what they need because it's sort of they're right on the cusp, aren't they? It's if they make a step, then it'll be sort of a P eleven, P twelve, P thirteen car in qualifying, and then track position is absolutely crucial. And then 
who knows what you're racing for in that situation and if everything's going to fall your way. Well, that's certainly what Williams will be be gunning for. Some some reason for optimism for them, at least, after this start to the season. Uh, well, we're going to take a very brief break, and then we'll be back to talk about off-track goings-on. Well, we've talked about the on-track action, but this was one of those rare weekends when the stories off-track were grabbing pretty much all of the headlines, actually. There was no shortage of those on one of the busiest Fridays any of us could remember. Now, the trigger point for all of this was the verdict being released for Renault's protest against Racing Point's brake ducts. This all started almost a month before with the first protest after the Styrian Grand Prix. The upshot of it was that the front brake ducts of the Racing Point were legally designed, the rear brake ducts were illegally designed, but the parts themselves are not illegal. Now, Racing Point has been given a €400,000 fine and a 15-point deduction, as well as various reprimands, and it can continue to run the offending parts. Unravel that one for us, Mark. Um, sporting and technical regulations, and the they've um, tripped themselves over on the sporting regs with regard to the rear brake ducts. Um, the technical regs they're, they're clean on. So it's uh, an unsatisfactory situation, and I think the FIA, uh, in realising that it had Mm, probably inadvertently contributed towards this problem by the lack of uh, clarity in the in the regulations, has tried to, I think, give a fairly lenient sentence. It's 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 accepted Renault's point in the protest and said, yeah, that is a valid point. Um, so it's obliged to do something, but I think it's in trying to give a lenient sentence, it's enraged. Um, a lot of the other teams who are not particularly upset with the brake ducts per se. It's the whole principle of how closely copied the racing point is of last year's Mercedes, which obviously opens the door to the back door to customer cars. And that poses an existential threat to teams such as Renault, McLaren, Williams, because if there are a lot of Mercedes clones, obviously it's going to be extremely difficult um, to be competitive because the, those clones would just be taking advantage of all the talent and investment that created the original car. And it's not a direction the FIA wants to go. It's subsequently made it very clear that it's not a direction that it wants F1 to go and that it's going to revise the regulations to ensure it doesn't happen uh, thereafter. Um, but in the meantime, uh, Racing Point has really mm, just mm, done a, taken advantage of a loophole, really, um, but in a way that uh, has greatly upset the other teams. And there's a level of distrust because of the anger, mainly, the, the, at how it has been created. And, uh, yeah, passions and uh, tempers are a bit inflamed at the moment and it's uh, that's I'm sure played its part in the fact that five teams have um, lodged a notice to intention to appeal the result, uh, four of them uh, insisting that the penalty is not harsh enough and the other one racing point itself uh, insisting that it's been um, unfairly treated yeah, it's been a great pile on, hasn't it, with uh, with other teams getting involved, not just those who are involved in the original one. Uh, but Scott, I mean, th- there's lots of different threads we can pull out here. Let's get the uh, FIA stewards' verdict itself out of the way. So, in terms of what Racing Point actually did in designing their rear brake ducts illegally, but front brake ducts legally, why is there this distinction given that they are both effectively 
Mercedes designs? Fundamentally, the key to this is the transition of brake ducts from uh, non-listed parts to listed parts. Last year, it was perfectly legal for Racing Point to acquire the brake ducts from Mercedes, and that's what they did. They had the front brake ducts and the rear brake ducts. The key distinction is that the front brake ducts were incorporated into the RP19, the 2019 Racing Point, uh, and the team developed it from there. And so the stewards ruled that the front brake ducts had been incorporated into the DNA of the car and said, had Racing Point requested clarification from the FAA as to what they should do with those front brake ducts, considering their starting point was Mercedes data, and then in 2020 the brake ducts had to be designed by Racing Point themselves, would that be okay? The FAA wouldn't have turned around and said, no, you have to start all over again because this isn't your information. It was because they'd used that on their car and evolved it. The key difference is that they never used the, the rear brake ducts. So Racing Point will may well have or claim legitimate reasons for, for, for doing this because it didn't work with the aerodynamic principles they were they were aiming for at the back end of the car and the philosophy that they had with the RP19. But fundamentally, what it means is that they the FIA believed that they bought the rear brake ducts with the sole intention of using those rear brake ducts to design 2020 components because Racing Point suddenly had to design their own rear brake ducts. And therefore, they, they can't be considered even like a, a Racing Point, like a a hybrid of the Mercedes and Racing Point designs because they 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 were never they were never on a racing on a Racing Point car so they are just Mercedes rear brake ducts and that's the key distinction they had a hand effectively in the development of the the 2019 design that became the 2020 front brake ducts but to all intents and purposes I, I think they even said that uh, you know there's there's very little almost indistinguishable. Uh, the the rear brake ducts of the 2020 Racing Point and the 2019 Mercedes. So that's ultimately the key area that they fell foul. But one person, Scott, who's definitely very irate about this verdict was Lawrence Stroll, the the team owner, who made a very very unusual public statement uh, before the race on Sunday. Uh, are you are you calling it unusual because Lawrence doesn't normally speak, or because of the manner in which he he delivered it through a through a bizarre auto cue Sky Sports F1 interview slash a written statement version of that speech released to the media. <laughs> Hostage video style, that's how I saw it. <laughs> it really was, wasn't it? It was, it was unusual in any way you would wish to characterise what Lawrence Stroll did. Uh, it would fit any definition of, of unusual. He is... Uh, I, I, I have to be careful with what I say because... Uh, because I, I really, I, I don't like some of, of what he has said. He's basically really angry. He doesn't like the fact that the team's been accused of cheating uh, because obviously they've been found to have broken the rules. So he's really annoyed that because they've been found to have broken the rules, people are saying they've broken the rules. Um, and But I think it's more, it's more these little digs that Ferrari and McLaren are now dropping, which is that, oh, well... If it was the brake ducts that they had, maybe there was something sort of more at play. So he's basically, he's taken it as a personal insult. You can see that because he said, I think he said, uh, I'll read out. I have never cheated at anything in my life. These accusations are completely unacceptable and not true. My integrity and that of my team are beyond question. Well, first thing I'd say to that is that nobody's integrity is beyond question. That's the whole point of a checks and balance process. Uh, but second of all, you can see that he has clearly taken this very personally. He's very angry at what he considers to be poor sportsmanship from Renault, Ferrari, McLaren and Williams, the teams that have all appealed the verdict. Um, 
And he says that they're dragging our name through the mud. He's basically going to use every possible means that he's got. And let's not forget, this is a man of quite considerable means to basically exonerate the team. And I guess by extension himself, because as I said, he is uh, he's conflating racing point of himself in, in this regard. He's also taken aim at the FIA for for the the vagueness of the regulations and they've got they've got a real bee in their bonnet about the um the fact that the front brake ducts were grandfathered but the rear brake ducts weren't so he's saying oh this grandfather thing never existed oh, i can't believe people are doing this he's basically fuming and to an extent there, there's an element of it where you sort of say yeah i can understand it but there is also a massive element of i think this is because you're not used to getting your own way and you're very, very irate about the fact that something so high profile has gone against you. And he's really, really had his nose put out of joint by the fact that other teams have jumped on the back of that and started to sort of prod a little bit further and, and harder. I thought it was a little bit over the top, given that I thought the stewards did a fairly fair verdict, considering they accepted the fact that there was mitigation in that the fact there was the gap in the rules. So, yeah, I, I thought it was a bit strange he, he attacked them. I think actually the stewards, and obviously I've gone through the verdicts uh, in painstaking detail. There's a piece on the the, the race website. I'm just trying to uh, the headline the key distinction that proved Racing Point's downfall. That, that tries to kind of explain the whole thought process of it. And uh, you've explained it quite well there, Scott. Probably better than I did in, in writing actually. So you maybe don't even need to read it. But uh, but anyway, I think the stewards' verdict was probably a valiant attempt to make the most of a tricky situation, as Mark mentioned. There's this whole problem of the origin of the problem was was the regulations didn't cover this eventuality, and that inevitably means there is there is mitigations. It was listed as one of the mitigating factors, along with the fact that Racing Point genuinely believed that they were doing the right thing and there was no problem with it. But there's a lot of kind of retrospective reasoning, and this would have happened had we been asked, etc. So it's very very complicated. And there's also Mark the interesting fact that Mercedes does kind of have. Well, it doesn't kind of. It very much has a part in this because Appendix 6 of the sporting regulations, which covers the listed parts, states that not only can you not receive either parts or design information about listed parts, you also cannot provide it to a competitor. And Mercedes provided the brake ducts uh, on on or around the 6th of January this year, which is obviously in 2020. So Mercedes is implicated in this, isn't it? It was not considered a significant breach, but it, it was a it was a breach nonetheless, according to the verdict. So, how worried should Mercedes be about getting sucked into this more than they already are? Yes, I think they they should be uh, concerned, um, especially as uh, Ferrari is one of the people that have given notice of intent to appeal, and it'll be interesting to see what the um, each of those uh, appeal cases uh, concentrate on and I wouldn't be surprised if uh, Ferrari's addresses that very point. Yeah, well, you, you will look at who's who you can get your hooks into as the basis of a of a of a appeal. And yeah, it's it's interesting for Mercedes because Toto Wolff's been hitting out at the decision a little bit. He said uh, that the that they provided the brake ducts to help out Racing Point with with testing basically, but it is pretty explicitly against the rules but the the steward did say it didn't give them any new design information they already had all of the CAD models for those parts so that's why it wasn't really considered to be a Mercedes problem but there's there's so many examples of fallout from this now Scott we should talk about what Nicolas Tombasis the uh, the FIA head of single seater technical matters said because he said that there is a desire to 
reframe the rules so that copycat cars can't happen. Now, this is going kind of beyond the breakdown case, but also getting into the idea of a team copying another car. So what exactly has been said and what's going to happen? Yeah, so as Mark mentioned um, a a little bit earlier on, there has been this sort of indication from the FAA that they want to change the rules. Uh, What the FAA haven't done, what Tom Bassis didn't do, is outline exactly how they intend to do that. They said that it's something that they want to roll out quite quickly, and basically they they want to find a way to enshrine it in the rules so that wholesale copying of a car for an entire concept isn't possible. Now, this is F1. The devil is in the detail. I'm really struggling to work out how you assign something approaching a binary value to what copying an entire car concept is because that is ultimately what it will come down to in the rules isn't it you're trying to put it in black and white and in clear terms what counts as whole car copying i asked mclaren's technical director james key this on uh, on saturday evening and uh, he said he said it's, it's that is exactly the point the devil is in the detail so they're going to be looking really really you know with with great interest as to what happens now i suspect and we talked about this. Um, we talked about this sort of between ourselves, didn't we? Ed, exactly how you're going to use this, and maybe some of the teams will leverage this, uh, use this as leverage to to try and get uh, a quick and expedited clarification within the regulations. You know, they, they, they've served their notice of the, you know intention to appeal. So, are they going to basically put pressure on the FAA now to say we're going to kick up a massive fuss over this, but we'll we'll let it go? If you pledge that within seven days or whatever, or I don't know, I'm 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 completely um, making this up in terms of like when they could do it, but just sort of I, that's what I would be doing in their situation because the biggest victory they can get on top of the on top of this sort of vague pledge is obviously the the details that will underpin it all. Yeah, it's extremely difficult to work out how you can frame that rule. In fact, the the stewards' verdict in the in the case broadly seems to accept the fact that the IP law, intellectual property law can't be the the standard at which against which your own design is defined so that takes potentially one possible definition off the table and in fact that would probably be too rigid a definition for uh, f1 to use but what do you think mark is there a is there a way to stop this copycat i don't think there's a way you can do it as, as scott is saying in in binary terms and in, in, in terms of words i think it may have to be something like um, the FIA um, has the right to scan every car and make scan comparisons between cars. And if it, you know, judges that uh, one car is too close to another, then it's invalid. And maybe there's got to be some sort of homologation um, pre-season to determine this. And just like you have to get it through a crash test, you you would also have to get it through a, a scan test uh, to check that there's no similarity. That's the big problem, though, isn't it? Because obviously there will be teams that have got alliances with other teams. You know, if you use a gearbox supply and an engine supply, that's going to define your risk. So there's there's common factors. Add to that the fact that 22 regulations are more constrictive and restrictive than ever before. So it, it's still going to be hard to, to work out what your percentage level is. So is it going to be one of these ones that's going to need the FIA to interpret it? It's kind of a, look, can everyone just be sensible and not not take the mickey on this and go too far? Is it going to have to be one of those sorts of things where they've just got the, the unilateral power just to slap people down if they if they go too far? Yeah, I don't think you can um, get a general consensus and a general agreement, a gentleman's agreement, because they always break down. Um, I think it's going to have to be a case of a, 
you know, a, a, effectively a, a referee saying, no, I'm not happy with that. Um, we would maybe get Gary Anderson a job because I think he'd be great at it. I liked um, Mark's idea of, uh, you know, could, could you have it so at the beginning of the, the, the season you're basically scanning the cars and making sure they don't cross over? It's, it's reminding me of when I had to submit my dissertation at university and it puts it, there's, there's, a, there's like a software program that the university employs and it runs your dissertation through it and works out, basically it, it um, applies a percentage of plagiarism onto the onto the piece so it basically scans it through i guess various articles and documents that it has within the system and then it gives you a percentage and if a certain percentage of the words and the structures of the sentences is too high it considers it plagiarism and and you can't you can't submit your dissertation and that sounds to me like an absolutely bonkers but brilliant if there is a way to apply that to a formula one car what what a system that would be i now want to know what percentage your dissertation came out as I I think it was uh, I think it was in sort of in the thirties. Let's say I think it was let's say it was thirty five percent plagiarized, which I think would explain why my final mark was thirty five percent. I like that thirty five percent plagiarized. I think we should do a range of T shirts that say thirty five percent plagiarized. I quite, I quite like that. But there's an idea for uh, F one. But there's so many implications, and this one will will probably run and run. But there was a lot of fractiousness in the paddock as well, wasn't there, Mark? We had Toto Wolf kicking off. Zach Brown in the press conference was getting a little bit punchy about the whole rest of the racing points uh, car, in, implying that this verdict raised questions about the rest of the the car. Which I should add, the verdict says nothing about the rest of the car other than the, agreeing the, with the principle of being able to photograph it and reverse engineer from that. They say that that's fine. So when it comes to this, why is everyone getting quite so? frustrated and what are the, what are the other factors is the whole concord thing starting to play into this as well everyone's getting so upset because um as i said earlier it is potentially an existential threat to about half the grid um who would quickly find themselves um tumble down the order and one by one probably <laughs> potentially cease to exist because they would um be out of the the the, the you know the the prize money over the years, so that's that's why um, you know it, it tempers are, are are flaring because it's if you ex- accept the principle of of what Racing Point has done quite legitimately um, because of the lack of clarity in the regulations concerning this particular point, um, then you are effectively changing the entire model of Formula One. And yes, the commercial agreement would very much uh, be part of that. And that's that's only days away from the deadline for, to be signed. And if you're saying that actually by some circuitous route you can actually create a customer car, then you, you, your whole basis of your commercial agreement collapses because... Uh, they, they, those teams won't have the R&D costs and of, of creating a car themselves anymore. It says a lot about how uh, how sensitive the, the subject is that the likes of, you know, Racing Point with the punishment that they have been found guilty. And I know they want to clear their name and everything, but they've been found guilty of something. They've got competitive advantages that they will carry for the entirety of the season. They didn't just get a head start that saved them a week or so's worth of development. They've got something on the car that improves its performance. They've got that for the whole year. And they've dropped one decent weekend's worth of points 
and they've been fined an amount that is what probably not even 10% of the amount they'll probably gain by having a much higher position in the Constructors' Championship because of the concept that they've introduced. And the brake ducts are not the reason that Racing Point will finish third or fourth or wherever in the Constructors' Championship this year. But it's all part, it, it is all part of a wider concept and every part plays its part. So Racing Point, really, having been found guilty, should have taken this on the chin, kept quiet and gone, oh, do you know what? We... we the, the the stewards have sort of said you've been a bit unlucky because the rules were a bit unclear, but ultimately should have checked. Here you go. It's effect. It's it's little more than an expensive slap on the wrist. Basically, I think they should have just kept their mouth shut basically and let it right, let it, let it just sort of go, go under the carpet a bit because there is this wider issue about whether or not Racing Point and Mercedes have now is it just the brake ducts that they've that they've traded? That's that is what. McLaren and Ferrari are now now are now asking, and basically by rising to that, Racing Point is just going to bring more attention on itself. I'm pretty confident that the way that Racing Point and Mercedes have responded over the course of this weekend has now led several of those teams, McLaren and Ferrari, for example, they will now think that their suspicions have been proven correct because these two teams have now reacted jumpily. So they'll now be going after the FIA saying, "Hey, why don't you look into this a little bit more." Uh, the re- one of the reasons that like Mercedes is Toto Wolf rather but on a personal level as well as in his role as team principal has got so irate and so involved is because as you say everything's so hypersensitive at the moment. We've had Toto's clearly on edge over Concord. He's ha- he's always got daggers for Matteo Bonotto at the moment. So anytime Ferrari pipes up, it 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 lights a fire under Toto. We've talked about this before. So everything's super sensitive. So just in the moment where every the parties involved should probably just you know play it cool, try and move past it, take this on the chin, accept that they've not done anything massively wrong, or go but or you know, and and stick to that story. They've got lots of other factors going on in the background, just little digs here, little digs here, and they just can't help themselves. Which is why this is. What should be, in theory, an isolated protest has now escalated into a full-on F1 civil war, hasn't it? We've got loads of teams at each other's throats. Yeah, I think if you'd, um, I think Racing Point maybe would have just left it um, if they thought that no one else was going to appeal the outcome. Um, but as soon as as soon as they heard that there was going to be appeals. I think they probably felt, well, to not put our own appeal in makes us look guilty. So, you know, that, as you say, it's, it's, um, it's touching a nerve with everyone. And I think really, yeah, it's, it's, it's unfortunate the way it's impacted um, on uh, teams that are going to be disadvantaged this season and, and potentially next. Um, but I think looking at the bigger picture because it's been partly created by the FIA and the, the way the regulations have been written, um, I think really it would serve the sport and everybody involved in it well if there could be some sort of behind-the-scenes diplomatic solution, maybe Ross Braun getting everyone together and saying, look, this is the absolute worst time to be plunging ourselves into a civil war. Uh, we really need that spirit that we had before the season um, when the pandemic hit to get the whole sport through this. 
And I think that, yeah, there's five teams have, have given notice of uh, their intention to appeal, but they don't have to actually put those appeals in until Monday night, I believe. So in between times, in between now and that, I think it, it's quite uh, important that um, there's some diplomatic knocking of heads together behind the scenes. Yeah, that's certainly going to be happening. There's a lot of people will try and take advantage of this situation for their own gains. It's amazing, isn't it? Remember, though, we do remember those halcyon days during the lockdown when everything in F1 was happy and F1 had been saved and wasn't it been brilliant. It's taken, what, five race weekends for everything to uh, really, uh, really fall apart. And this is in a, a socially distanced paddock where people aren't necessarily meant to cross bubbles and interact with each other. So imagine what it would be like if uh, if there was freedom of full freedom of movement around the paddock. It's... Uh, it's been quite a... It might, it might actually be better. It might, it's, you know, how people are rude on social media and say things to you on social media they wouldn't dream of saying to your face. It, it might be like that. That's probably true, actually. Yeah, the, the, the isolation makes it uh, harder. I suppose perhaps it's harder to get a little bit of an agreement, isn't it? You can, uh, that, that, that's why they probably do all need to get together and, uh, and work it out. But the clock's massively ticking. There's some very, very, very big things at stake. And trying to get it sorted on that time scale is is tricky but this has been coming from the moment that racing point first appeared and earned the pink mercedes name it's been clear you know as i said this started just under a month before and at the start of this segment but you know really it started in february when that car first appeared so yeah there'll be some more arguments and some more horse trading to come and of course you can follow all of that and even some of the on-track stuff on the races website that's the race.com and don't forget the hyphen plenty of stuff from myself mark and from scott mitchell and of course gary anderson and all the rest of our crew we've got loads of formula e coverage going on at the moment for example with their their berlin tempelhof marathon six race season finale so plenty to read on there uh do subscribe to the podcast and maybe if you've got time give us a bit of a review if you if you like what you hear you can give us a review if you don't like what you hear as well but uh, I, I won't try and persuade you too hard to do uh, that but uh, yeah otherwise just thanks for listening we've of course got another race coming up at the weekend the spanish grand prix in barcelona so i'm sure there'll be plenty more to talk about after that race in a week's time